What is happening, everybody? Oh, it's very, very good to be back. This is Kyle Serlo with another episode of the Golf Guide Podcast. Happy to have you here with me. Uh, coming at you a little late this week, recording this podcast from the great city of Portland, Oregon. Uh, been up here visiting golf courses all week uh, and having a really great time. And I got to tell you, you know, despite having made several trips to Portland uh, over the last couple of years, I have family that lives here. Um, I got to visit a lot of golf courses this week for the first time. And I got to tell you, the public golf scene in Portland, Oregon is phenomenal. All right. And and I don't mean phenomenal in like a Monterey kind of way where, you know, a lot of the public golf is top notch, you know, top 100 public course quality, you know, options left and right. I, I mean more for like the middle to lower tier in terms of price public courses in this city are fantastic I, I cannot tell you how many golf courses that i visited well actually let, let's be honest i can tell you exactly how many I visited 37 um but there were so many golf courses that were just unexpectedly delightful and beautiful and just appeared to be really fun um challenging but also welcoming to new golfers uh, you know, in terms of wide layouts, but, you know, big, beautiful trees everywhere, you know, r- nice course conditions. I mean, overall, I've just been really, really impressed with the quality of the public golf up here. Um, and I'm looking forward to making another trip up here this summer, you know, and trying to hopefully knock maybe six or seven of them off in uh, in a week's time and, and just be a lot of fun. I'm Obviously, you know, all my friends that live up here uh, who play a lot of golf all love it. Uh, tons of great options, but for the most part, they you know have a mix of you know higher end public and private courses they're playing. And again, these golf courses up here, where you're going to be paying anywhere from twenty to uh, fifty bucks to go play, are really fantastic. They all look really, really good. So, props to the city of Portland and its uh, and its golf scene up here. Very, very cool. Really enjoyed my time up here. But anyway, that is partially why uh, the podcast is coming out a little bit late this week. I've been out working uh, both Monday, Tuesday. And Wednesday of this week, and now recording this on Thursday afternoon, March 21st, uh, we're you know about five days now removed from Rory McIlroy's win at the Players' Championship. An incredible uh, win for Rory. Very nice to see him finally get to the top of the podium. Uh, albeit, you know, I, I do feel a little bad that it had to come at Jim Furyk's expense. I mean, I, I love me some Jim Furyk, and uh, watching him be very, very competitive and come within a stroke of uh, tying and putting this thing into a playoff was really... Uh, really fun to watch, but given the fact that that tournament is now uh, a couple days in the rearview mirror, we got other stuff we want to get to today. I won't, uh, I won't say too much more on the players other than I didn't really notice uh, the theme song <laughs> that we looked forward to uh, all that much. Um, but anyway, uh, great golf tournament for the players. Uh, this past weekend, I had a, another really fun opportunity to go visit uh, my good friend Ty uh, down in Orange County. Uh, his father-in-law took us out to a really great little uh, Tom Fazio private club down there called Shady Canyon, which was a ton of fun. Really enjoyed my time down there. Always cool to see what uh, the top uh, private clubs in different parts of California look like. And just a very, very cool golf course. Lots of j- incredible course conditions, as you might imagine. Uh, really, really fun there. Good catching up with Tyler and uh, and Bob. Uh, and then on Monday, uh, I went to the media day for the LPGA Tour uh, events LA Open next week. The Huge L Air Premia LA Open. And was really, really impressed, not only with the golf course. Uh, you know, the, the tournament takes place at Wilshire Country Club, which... It's so crazy, man. That golf course is literally right in the middle of Los Angeles, close to uh, close to downtown, just a few blocks from Koreatown, which for me is uh, sensational. I mean, if you're going to find an LPGA Tour event to go to, if you have a chance to go to next month event, next month's event, excuse me, uh, you should absolutely not miss that opportunity. Aside from the golf course being stunningly beautiful, the design of it, excellent. You know, I I don't know if I'd go so far to say it's one of the 
my, my favorite golf courses I've ever played. But um, in terms of a golf course that I'd be happy to play every day, it definitely would check that box. Uh, really, really interesting. Not, not that long. I think from the tips, it's only measuring out to like 65, just under 6,600 yards. Uh, but for an LPGA Tour event, it's going to be fantastic. The green complexes are stunning out there. I mean, there's so many cool, uh, like a, a, almost a half dozen different greens out there that are basically two greens combined into one that have a kind of little narrow shoot that combines the two. So, you know, whether the pin position is in the front, back, left, or right, you know, it's basically like having two completely different green complexes to hit to where, you know, from a from a private club's perspective, it's somebody's playing that golf course several times a week. To have that kind of variety in the golf course is going to be great. And then, you know, for a four-day tournament like these girls are going to play in April, um, to be able to vary up, you know, these, these pin locations with these huge, massive green complexes the way that they can uh, is going to keep things really interesting. And it won't allow any of these professionals to get too comfortable with the one club in their hand over the course of four days. Like, I know, for example, down at Wilshire, I believe it was the fourth hole, um, which is a par three where I, if I had to guess how deep that green complex is in... I, I'm thinking maybe 70, 75 yards from front to back. Um, and, you know, that, that that golf hole, if they're moving the tees up and they have the pin in the front, it, it might play 105 yards. But I'll tell you what, it's going to be a treacherous 105 yards, just, you know, really troubling bunkers, short, right, left. And then, uh, you know, or if they put it on the back tees and they put the pin on the back, all of a sudden you have a 200-yard par three. And this is the same hole. Um, so just really, really cool little quirks uh, that the golf course was filled with. Um, I can understand why last year's tournament, even on short notice, I mean, Wilshire Country Club in 2018 only secured the bid and, uh, you know, basically signed up to host this golf tournament like a month or two beforehand. And it turned out really well. And now I think with having one tournament under their belt, um, seeing what worked, what didn't work, you know, they're making some logistical changes because I know the, the two nines at Wilshire Country Club are on uh, opposite sides of this busy street down there. And the only way to get from one side to the other is a small, tiny little tunnel that is basically just wide enough to fit one single golf cart and last year they had both the pros going back and forth carts going back and forth carrying supplies and then when those weren't doing it then they would allow the spectators to go back and forth and understandably there was a little bit of a log jam so i know they're trying to work on uh getting an easement or something like that from the city of los angeles to actually have above ground you know street crossing you know basically installing a temporary crosswalk um if they can do that that is going to help reduce you know the traffic and getting to different parts of the golf course tremendously and really from everything that I saw and everybody I talked to down there, uh, it really seemed like that was maybe the only thing that they're really trying to get done that they weren't able to have completely locked in by the time the media took place on Monday. Um, as far as crowds go, I, I would expect them to be strong. Again, it's going to be a great tournament venue. I mean, with so many, like, so much going on in Los Angeles, close to the golf course, when you're not there watching the golf tournament, if you're hanging around, you can go to K-Town, eat some awesome Korean food. Hollywood is obviously right there. Um, it should just be a really fun golf event to travel to and spend a couple days at just with all the options for recreation off the golf course. In addition to watching, um, the best female players in the world play a really interesting and really beautiful golf course. So really looking forward to that, uh, uh, that tournament out at Wilshire country club. Again, that's the huge L air premia LA open, <laughs> which I mean, hopefully they can find a, a smoother sounding sponsor here in the coming years. But uh, either way, it's going to be a really, really fun golf tournament. Really enjoyed spending time down there this past Monday. And then, you know, obviously after uh, Monday, I flew up to Portland and worked here for the last couple days. Um, yeah, so really, really good stuff there. Um, a couple of things I wanted to touch on today is uh, we've got some news or some news regarding golf course sales. Um, you know, we I do really find the, the business of golf to be fascinating. It's a very challenging uh, industry to be in. There's not that many people in this industry 
that make a lot of money. It's filled with people uh, kind of like myself who just really love golf. And to them, it's worth it to be you know involved in this game uh, on a day-to-day basis because it brings us a lot of joy. Uh, but it is a challenging business to uh, be active and, and be profitable. And, and golf courses are certainly not ex- not an exception to that rule. And really, they're kind of the ones that <laughs> you know have the most at stake. And uh, there, there's been news of a couple golf course sales. Um, so up in Redmond, Washington, uh, Paul Allen, uh, former Microsoft uh, executive who passed away recently, the owner of the uh, Portland Trailblazers and the Seattle Seahawks. He also owned Willow's Run Golf Course up in Redmond, Washington, which is a 45-hole complex, right? They got two full-length 18s, uh, one nine-hole course, and it looks like it just sold in the past couple of weeks for a total of $11.3 million. Um, I don't really have a lot of sales to compare it to to know whether or not that is a good price, a fair price, but uh, interesting, 45 holes of golf just outside of Seattle. Um, I, I don't off the top of my head know exactly how many acres that is, but I'm guessing it's probably somewhere in the three to 500 range. So three to 500 acres that have a, you know, a couple of, you know, from the few people that I've talked to that have played it, a really enjoyable public golf course. Um, I, I think that you could call that one a pretty good deal. Um, now, the one, the golf sale that's uh, hitting a little closer to home for me anyway uh, is this news that came out. Um, you've been hearing rumors about it for a while, but Austin Murphy uh, from the Press Democrat came out with a story earlier this week, uh, you know, headlined, after years of financial woes, Oakmont Golf Club will go up for sale. Um, so a, as a kid who grew up in the North Bay Area, Oakmont is a 36-hole complex uh, located in a senior living community in Santa Rosa, California. Um, you know, it does have homes on both sides of a lot of the golf holes out there, but this thing is located in the Valley of the Moon, which is one of the most premier wine-growing regions in the world. It's an absolutely beautiful part of the Bay Area. Uh, it has always been a really enjoyable place to play golf. Uh, I know growing up, you know, two of the schools that were in the league, uh, my high school's golf league, you know, had each of the, the courses there as their home courses. So I played Oakmont a lot growing up and, uh, They've been struggling for a while, and it looks like now they're finally going to put the golf courses up for sale, which is interesting because it's located in the senior community, but the community itself doesn't own the golf courses. They're, they're separate. Now, it, it, what's interesting, and I'd love to actually do a podcast, I'd love to talk to somebody who's researched this a little bit more heavily. I know um, a month or two ago, there was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal basically talking about how the closures of golf courses that are in like home developments, how those closures have affected... Um, you know, home prices and basically, you know, in Austin Murphy's article in the Press Democrat and a little bit that I read from that Wall Street Journal article that I can remember is if you have a golf, you know, if you have a, a home that's located on a golf course that's in a community that's basically centered around these golf courses, if these things shut down, you can kind of expect to lose 10 to 20 percent of the value of your home. And in a place like the North Bay Area where uh, real estate prices are very, very high, you know, you have you're talking about people, you know, with the closure of a golf course you know, losing maybe $100,000 of equity in their home. So, you know, these these people that live on this golf course have a lot at stake. And it's funny because it seems like there's been a lot of bickering over the years of uh, people that live in the community that play golf versus don't play golf um, and how the people that don't play golf really don't care. But, they're you know, it seems kind of short-sighted because maybe they're not understanding how it affects the value of their home. But then some people are saying that that 10 to 20% is a little bit overblown. Not based on what I read from that Wall Street Journal article. I mean, this is a serious, serious issue. Um, I, I guess not too long ago, uh, there was like a vote in the community to add like a $5 fee per month. Uh, that would go a long way into kind of getting the golf course uh, back up to even, paying off all of its like debts and things like that and getting rock and rolling. And it failed. You know, uh, 
there was enough people in that community that were like, I am not going to spend $5 a month to keep this golf course in my backyard open. I just don't care. I want to turn it into a park anyway. Well, it unfortunately, in hindsight, it looks like that 5 bucks a month may have actually been the difference between this Oakmont Golf Club staying open and not staying open. Um, and so it's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens uh, going forward. I, I, I really hope that it does stay open. It's a great resource. It's got uh, one of the 18s is an executive length golf course. Um, which there's just not enough of, you know, a golf course that actually has like legitimate, you know, tough par fours and a, and a good mix of par threes. Um, it'd be really, really fun. And if, if somehow, some way this golf course gets saved again, even with the homes that are, you know, it's kind of scattered throughout the, uh, the courses. I mean, if somebody wanted to come in and, um, you know, soup these things up a little bit and make them a little bit more higher end and make it so, you know, make it so they're golf courses that people would want to get in their car and drive an hour to go play. I think there'd be certainly a market uh, for for that. I mean, I I look to a place like Quail Lodge down in Monterey, which, you know, has houses and like uh, condos and stuff like that, you know, on most of the golf course. And yet it is sensational. I believe uh, Todd Eckenrode went down with his team a few years back and they turned it into a phenomenal kind of resort style golf course. And I, I think there is an opportunity for Oakmont to do something like that. Now, that it's a long way away from from that happening, but uh, it certainly seems like there would be an opportunity there uh for for something to happen so i will keep you guys updated again this is something that's happening in my own backyard uh so i probably have more of an interest in this than some other people but you know this this is an issue that's happening all over the united states right now Uh, a lot of it happening in southern california northern california i mean oregon nevada i know it's happened all over the place you know and this is just in the territory that we cover here at pacific coast golf guide so it's happening all over the states um and you would think with enough of them happening over the last four or five years that we might be able to learn a little bit about what's helping these golf courses stay afloat and what's not um, so yeah, it definitely will be interesting to monitor and I will keep you guys updated as I get more information on this. Uh, and then staying in the world of golf business, uh, I also found this interesting. I, so I just learned about this company, uh, called big shots. Okay. Big shots is very similar to top golf, but it's on a little bit of a smaller scale. Right. And so, um, top golf has basically scaled down its plans, you know, it should say scaled down its plans. It has scaled down the plan that it uses for its facilities to be attractive and work in smaller markets because right now top golf is basically just serving major you know metropolitan markets all across the states i think the standard top golf complex uh usually sits on about 13 acres it usually needs a minimum of 13 acres and cost anywhere from 15 to 50 million dollars to build right um whereas this big shots uh company they're usually you know more around the 10 acre and uh, the costs for those are usually somewhere more in the eight and a half to twelve million dollar range. And they already have one uh, facility open in Vero Beach, Florida. Um, and what's interesting is, unlike Top Golf, this Big Shots place is more or less selling franchises. So uh, they're going to use the franchise model in a in an attempt to expand all over the place. And now Top Golf, uh, sensing that they could be coming across a little bit of competition. Uh, as I mentioned, created a new plan that allows them to make their facility with far fewer stalls on a smaller piece of land in hopes to probably quash the business uh, uh, threat that uh, Big Shots is posing. Um, very, very interesting. I know Club Corp is the owner of Big Shots. They you know, obviously manage tons of clubs, hundreds of them all over the United States. So they definitely kind of know what they're doing with this golf stuff. But uh, it's very interesting. Now, if you're if you really like, hey. I want to get I want to get in the business. What what are these franchise opportunities? Uh, I think it's like 125k to, for a franchise agreement, and then you pay an eight percent royalty and a two percent marketing fee. So, hey, you want to own like a mini Top Golf, you know, okay, big shots type place, and 
in a population center around 100 to 150,000 people. Club Corp, uh, Club Corp has a meeting. Has, you know, they would like to talk to you. Uh, is basically what I'm trying to say. So, uh, very interesting there. Uh, and that's kind of it for my golf news. And then the last thing I wanted to touch on, and I thought this was interesting. Uh, Golf.com came out with an article a couple days ago where they basically uh, talked about the three common swing mistakes that new golfers make. Uh, And this is from Top top 100 teacher Joe Plecker. And the reason that uh, I found this interesting is because, you know, I'm in a situation where my wife has just started to take up golf in the last couple of years. And, you know, whether or not I have kids one day, I have no idea. But if I was to, or, you know, you have uh, people in your life that are, you know, now expressing a desire to start playing the game, you know, how, how... how do you help them start, right? And even though I've played a lot of golf over the years, I really don't feel that comfortable giving too much advice because in reality, I don't know jack shit. Like I, I know a little bit about my own golf swing and I know next to nothing about everybody else's. Okay, I'm, I'm not Brandel Shambly. I don't analyze golf swings for a living. Um, but you know, there, there are a couple things that maybe you just want to know to help the people in your life who are interested in picking up the game Um, just a couple things that you can help them with to get started, to be able to get them to start hitting balls and kind of feel a little bit better before you send them to an actual instructor that kind of can help them build their golf swing from there. And so I was thinking, well, this is really cool. This is something I could share with my wife, something I could share with any of my friends that are thinking, Hey, I want to start picking up and and playing a little bit of golf. And because, you know, everybody who listens to this podcast obviously loves golf. Um, I, I would assume that maybe you're at a situation there as well, where maybe you have someone in your life that has expressed an interest in beginning to play golf to you. And you're thinking, all right, well, you know, I, how, how can I help them out without really leading them off, you know, leading them to a path where basically I'm just going to force them to start using the same terrible habits that have forced me to be a 15 handicap for the last 20 years. You know, like how, how can you get them to a, a, pl- a good place to start without overdoing it and just giving them a good foundation of skills to, uh, to start with? So um, the three common mistakes that I found when I read them were wildly obvious but also make a ton of sense. And uh, here's here's it. So the first one, the lead hand grip, right? So if you're a right-handed golfer, it's going to be your left hand. And they, they said it's shocking how many people just aren't quite sure how to grip that golf club. I personally, this is, the one they recommended is actually the same thing that I uh, advised my wife to use. And that is when you got that left hand down, you just want to have it so you can just see two knuckles on your left hand. And then obviously you're gripping uh, the golf club kind of in your fingers as opposed to in your palm, right? And then you have that left uh, thumb kind of overlap a little bit. Well, oddly enough, number two in the common swing mistakes of golfers make is the trail hand grip, right? So really, the grip is two-thirds of it. And I know a lot of golfers when they're starting out, you know, if they want to use a baseball grip, cool. You know, just make it comfortable. But what they reminded me, though, is that even if they do decide to use a baseball grip, the positioning in terms of over or under and the way, like, where their wrist is in comparison to everything else is actually a huge factor as well. And that's where a lot of these new golfers make a huge mistake. And the one little tip I thought was really interesting, I was like, huh, is that really the case? I grabbed a golf club, tested it out myself, and I was like, well, they're actually totally right there. And that is, after you have that, uh, that the lead hand grip on there, after you, when you put your, uh, your trail hand on, you basically want the palm of your hand to perfectly go over your lead hand's thumb, Right. So that way it keeps it keeps the golfer from putting the grip into the palm of their trail hand and instead kind of forces them to hold it in their fingers as opposed to the palm. That is huge, absolutely huge. If if a new golfer can kind of at least get the grip down, they're two-thirds of the way there to avoiding the biggest mistakes these new golfers make. 
And it, in all honesty, if you if you start out with a good grip, it's so much easier to consistently make the same swing at the golf ball over and over and over again. So the grip is two-thirds of it. And then the last thing, obviously, uh, is posture. You know, a, a lot of new golfers tend to stand up a little too straight or they bend over a little too much. Uh, and if you can kind of just help them understand where they're supposed to be and kind of the positioning when they're standing over the ball, that combined with a good grip, those are the foundations of any golf swing. And if you just, if you position the new golfer in your life to just understand those couple things, and then from there, they, the rest is just, just repetition and practice. And, and maybe going to see an instructor that can help them with the, the more intricate parts of the golf swing, but give them a good foundation. I, I thought those were awesome. I'm going to continue to think about that. And really, the other thing I'll think about is the video that I mentioned uh, in either last week's podcast, the podcast after before that, where Jack Nicholas was, uh, it's kind of resurfaced, it's an old Jack Nicholas instructional video from the 80s, where he's basically just saying, you know what, don't change up your golf swing, use the same golf swing all the time, you want to hit the golf ball hard further, don't swing harder, just go up a club, you want to hit a little bit shorter, go down a club, don't swing softer, just make the same exact golf swing every single time, and you tw- quit trying to get cute with it, and again, I'm playing 100 plus rounds of golf a year, and I was thinking to myself like, man, he's so fucking right, I'm like trying to get so cute. I'm not even good that I'm not even good at golf and I'm trying to do all these expert things, you know, to switch my club head, you know, put a little outside in, you know, change my swing path a little bit and say so soft if I want. I'm just not good enough. And 99% of the golfers in the world are just not good enough to be doing that kind of stuff. So, uh, if we can find a way to simplify everything, um, that that would be awesome. And that goes especially for these three common swing mistakes that new golfers make. If you have a chance, go ahead, uh, visit golf.com, and you can read the article. It's a very, very interesting, short little you know three- or four-minute read, but uh, very, very instructive all the same. Uh, and with that, short podcast this week is all wrapped up, everybody. Uh, I, I thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the podcast, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. It's always much appreciated. Uh, and until next week, where I'll probably be back earlier, uh, back to our Monday or Tuesday schedule, um, I will talk to you all then. So, uh, uh, yeah, until next week. Adios.